0: Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now, let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a great one. So, it's early in 2019 and I am already fresh off to my first big adventure of the year. My second annual Costa Rica surf and yoga retreat put on by my friend, the legend, Colleen Cannon of Women's Quest. I've interviewed her before. If you just search the word watermelons and women will save the world, you will find that podcast. Um, I am pretty sure you are all right now somewhat envious and wishing you could join me. I uh, I will let you know when registration opens for 2020. It is not free. You will need to save up. But these kind of experiences are totally worth it. I actually never would have predicted that I would do this retreat more than once. I figured, um, I guess when I signed up last year, I just wanted to learn how to surf. So I figured it'd be like a one and done kind of thing. Like having one kid, right? One and done. But uh, the experience was just so powerful last year. It was such a surprise. It impacted me much more profoundly than I expected in, I don't know, in two, in a lot of ways, but two big ways. Emotionally, it was a huge break, a big release from my real life, maybe even like a little bit of an escape. Um, And I've never really done that before, just like truly... Let myself go somewhere alone as an adult, you know, and relax and truly enjoy. And those of you who do this, you're already enlightened. So thank you. I am now in your crowd. Um, But secondly, it was the surfing. Oh my gosh, the surfing. (laughs) I am not a surfer, but I am an adult woman who learned how to surf last year. And then I couldn't stop dreaming of standing on a board again. And I, I'm, I'm so excited and like nervous to do it again this year. But I guess my point is that I'm starting the year out right. I'm taking an immediate break. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was thinking about this and it kind of hit me. It takes work to become the owner of your own life. To be able to make decisions like this that will help lead you to growth, strength, and empowerment, you actually have to practice making decisions that are the best for your well-being, not at the expense of other people, of course, but sometimes they're still really hard decisions to make because it's so ingrained in us that we need to be taking care of so many other people or keeping our bosses happy or you know, our family or whatever it is. And I will let you know right now that leaving my daughter for 10 days is no joke. I'm like I'm a little bit sick about it, but I know the experience on the other side will be so transformative for me in whatever way it's going to be this year, that I must do it. I must. So I am. Today's guest, Heather Kaplan, is a dietitian, a running coach, a woman who has struggled and overcome. We talk deeply about our relationship with food, eating, body image, and more. And at one point she says, I felt like my life was running me instead of me running my life. And that's the switch that needs to change. And that's what I was talking about earlier. That's what we focus on in today's podcast, how we can take, like we can take control of our lives. You know, in Heather's world, this is focused on on the often difficult emotional relationship with food and eating as it as it relates to our relationship with our bodies. So as women and primarily and men too, of course, you know, but we we really understand how emotional this can be. So Heather and I talk about diet, culture, intuitive eating. Cool philosophy. We talk about weight, and scales, and habit and obsessive eating, and finally, how to retrain your brain. So, please note that Heather is also a podcast host. So, she's a pro. <laughs> she's pretty awesome. You're going to have to check out her show. It's called RD Real Talk. She gets down and dirty in every episode on something relating to food and eating and nutrition. Um, before we start, Please head over to skirtsports.com. Pause this episode. Head right over there, or if you're in Boulder or Colorado, make a trip to Boulder and pop into our Boulder store on 28th and Pearl Street, and take advantage of the 20% discount that I am personally giving you just because you listen to my podcast. Um, there'll be a few restrictions, like I don't think you can use it on super steep sale stuff and all that, but. But you can definitely use it on the newest, latest, and greatest. And we are launching new styles, prints, colors, and so much more very soon. Big notables this year are a new collection made especially and specifically for women who wear sizes 1X, 2X, and 3X. And a Killer Swim collection is landing in February. So make sure you use the code RUN20. All right back to the show. It is time to bring Heather Kaplan on. So hey, Heather. Hi. (laughs) I just turned on my podcast voice. Can you tell? (laughs) (laughs) I could tell it's a great podcast voice. (laughs) Hey, thanks for coming on today. I know, uh, hey, we're both running around like crazy and it's the holidays and busiest time of year and yet we found time to get together to talk about this thing called food (laughs) yes here we are Um, let me just start out by maybe having you explain what you do for a living because as I mentioned when we were chatting a little bit before we hit record here you have about seven different titles next to your (laughs) name and and uh, maybe you can explain a little bit of your background and how you came to do what you do today
1: Uh, Yes, it is always a struggle to explain my job. So sometimes I just narrow it down to whatever I feel like talking about that day, (laughs) depending Mm -hmm. on who asked. Um, Yeah, so I am a business owner. I'm a registered dietitian. I have a private practice. I have a podcast. I have a nonprofit. I do one-on-one nutrition counseling. I used to do run coaching, but I don't anymore. And um, I do some freelancing. So Given any week, my schedule looks different, um, but I like it that way. So it keeps me happy.
0: Awesome. And well, here's the other thing: you're you also left off that you have a one year old. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, yes, I'm a parent, so I have an almost one year old, very close to being one. Um, and yeah, I did a couple of different jobs that brought me to this place, but I've known for a while that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and kind of carved my own way. So I've been doing that for about the last two years.
0: Well, it's so cool. Um, you reached out a while ago and your email just kind of got buried and I found it again. I thought, yes, we've got to talk about this one topic in particular called orthorexia, which we're going to get into here in a minute. But when I started digging in more to the kind of work you do, the philosophy you have about healthy living... Um, I realized that it isn't just one topic we're going to hit on. It's probably a little bit of everything that ties into all those things that you said you do now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my one of the things I thought about was in order to get started here, when we could literally probably talk for days, it just hit me that really we're talking about how our minds um, evolve around food, right? How, how our mindset evolves around food. And then the word food just became like this big four letter word that starts with F, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, while I was thinking that I was actually thinking about food because I'm hungry, you know, or I was hungry and I'm, I'm almost always like thinking in some way about food. Um, I may not attach Uh, emotional thoughts to food, but I then realized that I am probably not the only woman who often thinks about food within a day. So Mm -hmm. maybe we can just talk about that for a minute. Like, What is it about women that we are constantly thinking about food and eating?
1: Well, I will say that I think probably both genders are affected by this. And we probably do a little bit of a disservice to men who are also thinking about this a lot by implying that it's only our gender. But that being said, women are disproportionately affected by diet culture and the idea that we have to aspire to the thin ideal and we have to do anything it takes to kind of change our bodies to be acceptable in society. I think we are disproportionately affected by that. So Um, I think that's a lot of what leads us to this kind of preoccupation with food that you're describing, whether that's related to chronic dieting, eating disorder, or just kind of generally existing as a woman, (laughs) right? So um, I think that's part of it, and like, just kind of an example of that is I'll hear people say, like, as a woman, I feel like I can't eat as much as other people at the table because it seems less ladylike or less societally accepted for like a woman to have a big appetite. And we could use that metaphor in a lot of different conversations, right? But for the sake of sticking to to food, um, I think that's a lot of it. Like we just kind of exist in a culture that focuses um, much more so on women's appearances and their acceptable or unacceptable habits than men. So we get affected by that.
0: Well, that's true. And, you know, here's Another way to look at it is, when you think about food a lot, is that necessarily a negative thing? It depends on how
1: you want to phrase that, I think. So we could definitely be in a situation where there's a lot of morality assigned to food and our behaviors, and I do see that pretty often, Um, but that's not true for everyone. So I think if you're constantly thinking about food, it could be that, like you said, you're hungry, so if you're a really active person and your energy output is really high and you have high energy needs, that just might be a reason you're thinking about food a lot. It might be kind of hard for you to meet those needs with the standard like three meals and snacks in between. Um, but then for other people, which is kind of more the work that I do, it can be a chronic underfueling. So our body's response to what I'll call like starvation mode, I didn't make that term up, but the kind of state of being that we're chronically underfueled and not getting enough energy, it's a survival instinct to be thinking about food. It's our brain's way of saying, I need
0: food. So,
1: like, where can we find it? You know?
0: So, can you be at an unhealthy weight, like overweight, and be in starvation mode? Well, first, I will
1: say that I, in the work that I do and in weight inclusive dietetics, we don't attach health to weight. So someone could be in a larger body, and that doesn't mean they're unhealthy. So I wouldn't say that anyone is at an unhealthy weight unless we have a really good sense of their weight history and where their weight has fluctuated and what really seems healthy for their body. Um, But yeah, absolutely. I think you can be at any body weight and be preoccupied with food. It all depends on your lived experiences and how you've maybe dieted or not dieted, had an eating disorder or not had an eating disorder, um, and kind of like how you experience stigma or um, other like stigma, basically in the world of what you're living in. So people in a larger body might be thinking more about food because they feel like they aren't allowed to have as big of an appetite as someone in a smaller body where it's more acceptable for them to be eating all the time.
0: Oh, I (laughs) this is so crazy, because it's so beyond actual food and eating. I mean, it's We're going into society you know, we're going to the way bigger picture to start out, I guess. And mm-hmm. when, you know, at the beginning, you kind of mentioned diet culture. And I know on, you know, on your website, you say you're an anti-diet dietitian, and you don't assign weight goals to people necessarily. And um, and I, I love the sound of this, but I don't quite understand what it all means.
1: Sure. So an anti-diet dietitian is saying that... W- we as a whole, like kind of this this sector of dietetics, don't believe in weight loss diets because they're proven to be ineffective. It's a lot of the research shows that one to two thirds of people who lose weight will gain it back and will actually gain more weight than what they lost. Um, so that gets us into what's called weight cycling, where someone who has been a chronic dieter loses weight but gains it back and loses weight and gains it back. And so there's kind of that yo-yo effect um, or yo-yo dieting is kind of a more better understood term. Um, And that's where we see a lot of the health risks come in of people who have kind of weight cycled up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, So not only are weight loss diets not effective, but they can actually be harmful to health if we see that weight cycling happening. Um, So that's why you kind of see this movement in dietetics towards an anti-diet approach, which means that we don't believe in weight loss diets because they're proven not to work. So it feels unethical to assign that to somebody. Um, But that's not to say that we don't believe in medical nutrition therapy. So there's sort of a misconception around the term Mm -hmm. anti-diet. And there are certainly situations in which a medical nutrition therapy diet, so something like um, helping people manage their diabetes or going on a low FODMAP diet temporarily to help with IBS. You know, something like that is a different realm. Um, But it really is referring to that acknowledgement that weight loss diets are ineffective and trying to manipulate someone's body weight has largely been proven ineffective so instead taking an approach where you can see someone as a whole human and assess their needs and understand their health goals instead of imposing our own onto them and from there just working with them to develop a healthier relationship with food so okay
0: love all i mean this this all makes a lot of sense right Mm-hmm. I have experienced trying various weight loss you know, uh, regimens in the past a long time ago, actually, because if we get into our personal stories, I actually feel pretty healthy with my body and food and eating at this stage and age, mm-hmm. but I wasn't always. Um, pretty much if you're listening right now, you're listening. If you're listening, you're listening. I know you're on, um, you know, wherever you are, raise your hand. If you've ever experienced a somewhat demoralizing weight loss, you know, experience where you try to diet to lose weight. And I can guarantee that probably 90% of people listening are raising their hand right now, because I just, I feel like at some point in your life, you go through, a period of not feeling happy with where you are or not feeling healthy or somebody tells you you're not, right? Right. So you mentioned, you know, weight, weight loss diets are proven to be ineffective. This just seems pretty obvious. Or there's like a honeymoon period and everyone seems so happy and then boom, it, you know, a year later back to where you were or worse. Give us an example of or a few examples of various weight loss diets that, you know, you've, you see as almost unhealthy,
1: Well, I think first we probably think about the calorie restrictive diet. So that might be disguised under a lot of different names. But essentially the idea is that if we just reduce our calorie intake and increase our calorie output, we will magically lose weight. And that's largely been proven ineffective. We know that it doesn't just come down to a math equation anymore. So um, not only does that work because the science doesn't hold up, but it doesn't work because if we even just ignoring kind of the, what's called the 3,500 calorie rule, or that being that 3,500 calories equals a pound, blah, blah, blah. Um, we also just see that if the body goes into starvation mode, like I was referring to earlier, where we're restricting and not getting enough energy to maintain our bodily systems, um, that's a form of stress. It causes a stress reaction. And so it's not sustainable, not only like, psychologically, um, but it's physically not sustainable, we can't really just keep eating less and less and less. And if that does happen, it often ends up being a clinical eating disorder. So it kind of starts to mess with our psyche. Um, But yeah, it's just not sustainable for someone to restrict, which is why even if a diet is putting air quotes around effective for a little while, and someone does lose weight, um, and I'm sure there'll be people here who also are listening and thinking, yeah, I I lost weight on a diet, it worked for me. Um, But I always challenge that definition of it worked, or it was successful. You know, how long were those new habits really sustainable? Um, And some people might say they went on a diet and maintain some of the habits that they learned through changing their eating patterns and their exercise patterns and that has been sustainable so I'm sure sometimes there are kind of more health promoting behaviors that someone is able to sustain because they feel good so they might have learned something about themselves and been able to keep that as part of their routine Um, but my guess is that 100% of the diet does not stick around, maybe just little bits and pieces of it. Um, Some others that come to mind that are a little more trendy right now are like the ketogenic diet or the paleo diet or the Whole30 diet, which is supposedly not a diet, just a lifestyle. Um, So those are kind of the the trends. Um, and those will say, you know, we're not a weight loss diet. We're just changing the way you eat so that you can lose weight. Um, not focused on the numbers, but they are focused on removing something. So even if it's not specifically calories, it's removing specific food groups or significantly cutting out specific food groups. And even that is rarely sustainable for somebody.
0: So tell me why, like this word restriction keeps coming up, removing Mm -hmm. things. Yeah. Why can't that be sustainable?
1: Well, I think in most cases, we're restricting to the point that it's unhealthy. So again, if we are eating a really low calorie intake, it's probably less than what our body needs. So that's eventually going to be unhealthy for us. If we're restricting certain food groups, we're missing out on a lot of specific nutrients. So each food group brings a lot to the table, so to speak. Um, So if you cut out an entire food group, you're cutting out nutrients. And it's not to say that you can't get those nutrients elsewhere, but there are some that are harder to get elsewhere, like certain food groups are really good sources of vitamins and minerals. And so you could get them elsewhere, or you could end up supplementing with a multivitamin or protein powder or something like that. Um, But ultimately, we've just seen that on a psychological level, we as humans don't respond very well to restriction, because if we did, we probably wouldn't survive right? Like eventually we'd need to thrive. Um, so just on a psychological level, we, we begin to kind of reject that sense of restriction if it's not necessary. So we're speaking in terms of people who have plenty of access to food and have plenty of access mm. to movement and safe spaces and cooking and you know, food security. So I think that's always worth acknowledging. Um, but that's also why it doesn't work because we have access to it. So that constant restriction can kind of break down your, like, willpower or self-control or a sense of that. But really, it's just the brain in survival mode trying to say, like, I see this thing. I know it's available to me. Why can't I have it, (laughs) you know? And what we find is really true. So I work in the the space of intuitive eating. And that's really promoting food flexibility and allowing people to have all foods as part of their diet, not saying that any one thing is not allowed. And what we see more often than not is that when people have that food flexibility, and they allow themselves that permission to eat anything, they often find that they crave those things less, and they want less of them, because it's easier to feel satisfied. You know, like, if you, if you're looking at, any given thing that you crave really often, I'm going to give like a very stereotypical example, but say you're like at a birthday party and you love cake, but you only allow yourself to eat it at your birthday and your partner's birthday, just random. But that's the rule that you've implied so that you don't end up eating it at all these other birthday parties. And so you're at this party and you feel like, well, I can't have cake because It's not my birthday. It's not my partner's birthday. And that's the only time I eat cake. But then at your birthday or your partner's birthday, chances are you have a craving to eat the whole cake. Like it doesn't feel like one piece is going to satisfy you because you know, you've already placed this restriction on yourself. And so there's that like threat of deprivation already present. And it feels like I just want more. And then that's what people kind of respond poorly to is this idea that, well, when I have one piece, I want all the pieces. I'm like, well, that probably wouldn't be true if you were more flexible with it.
0: So that reminds me of addiction, you know, I mean, My history includes um, abuse with alcohol. I couldn't just have a drink. I had a lot of drinks when I drank, you know. Mm -hmm. And I loved watching the people who could have one or two drinks and be fine. And I wished I could be that person, but I couldn't. So in my world, I had to end that relationship. But you can't just end a relationship, you know, with food because you need it. (laughs) And so therefore begins this dance, right? You talk about like restrictions that are not sustainable. The first thing that that um, you know crossed my mind was you know the food group of like sugars and sweets. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. you know, many arguments could be stated that that is not something that is generally could generally be considered good for you. And you know, maybe within reason. So there's this whole concept of anything in uh, what's the what's the uh, phrase again? Oh, anything moderation. In moderation. Yeah. I'm sure. So yeah. like you're saying, if you allow yourself, if you're truly a sugar addict and you go to the birthday parties and you say, you know, I, I am going to try this intuitive eating and be flexible. So I don't eat my whole cake on my birthday. Um, so I'm going to have a piece, but then because you have this sort of addictive <laughs> way about you with that one particular thing what there's like fear involved, right? So say you're that person, you eat the piece of cake, but then the whole rest of the party, you find yourself going back into the kitchen to sneak another small piece till you've eaten a huge amount of cake. Like how do you actually change that behavior? So people don't have to live in fear and restriction at the same time.
1: Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you brought up like the difference between a substance addiction and food. So I think we see a lot of fear mongering around sugar, specifically calling it a food that we can be addicted to. Um, That science doesn't hold up for what it's worth. (laughs) So when you look at those studies, and you correct for restriction for people who have restricted sugar versus people who haven't, There are no signs of addiction. But when we've restricted that food intake, then the response psychologically is so, or physiologically is so different than those who eat it more frequently. Um, So while there's sort of that comparison, I find it really irresponsible for journalists to say, or even studies that have said, oh, clearly there's um, something similar to addiction here. Because I think that generally disregards the severity of substance addiction, is like you said, you can live your life and not have alcohol because you know that's what's most important to you, right? So you've made that choice for yourself, but that's very different than food. Um, so I think it's important to draw that line, but then for the person who feels like they are addicted to sugar, um, I would have a lot of questions around, you know, how often have you tried to restrict it? How many times have you gone on a diet where you've told yourself you're not going to eat sugar anymore? Um, How often does that cultural message play into your behaviors? So how is that feeding into your thought process around sugar? Because if we convince ourselves that we're addicted to sugar, it does feel very scary to be around it or very scary to think about giving yourself permission to eat it because then it's like, oh, Clearly, I'm addicted to it. I'm just going to have so much. And then we kind of play into that story, whether we realize it or not. Um, But when people practice this flexibility with sugar or with any other food, I mean, I've done this, it's kind of called food exposure therapy. So we've done this a lot, um, where the more permission you give yourself to enjoy those things, the more you realize that you you do end up balancing it out. Because ultimately, we do know that if we had nothing but sugar all day, every day, we wouldn't feel great right? Like that wouldn't feel good for our energy levels and our gut and our body as a whole. And we know that. So ultimately, when we can kind of be more in tune with what our body is telling us and how we respond to our food intake, then it's, and we balance those things out. um, And we consider both emotional and physical health, then everything does kind of end up being in moderation just naturally.
0: And wouldn't that be like amazing if we could get there? (laughs) So yeah. I mean that's let's 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 stop pause this for a moment because mm-hmm. I want to get us back to how can people reframe to get there to a place of like lovely acceptance right and moderation and intuitive eating but I want to ask how you got here because yeah. I know you're very open about your own personal journey in this world and that you are, you know, also someone who has suffered from some of the things that now you're able to teach even better. Right. Yeah, so were you always like uh, interested in this world even as a kid?
1: Well, I will say that I became interested in nutrition in high school um, because I was dieting in high school, so of course I was interested in nutrition. Um, I actually had planned to go to college and study architecture, which I don't think would have been a good fit for me. <laughs> so I think it all turned out fine. Um, but I got to school and had been gradually losing weight, although I didn't—I wasn't really totally aware of that because, like, 18-year-olds, how self-aware are we? But Um, I got to school and I remember telling my advisor like, yeah, I applied for architecture, but I'm also kind of interested in nutrition and I know there's a program here for that. So she signed me up for a nutrition class my freshman year. It was my first semester. And I, I think I said, you know, I want to help people lose weight because I've lost weight so clearly I can help other people do that. Like that was my very arrogant, naive mindset. And I go into this nutrition class, and the first thing we start talking about is calories and food nutrients like carbohydrates, proteins, fats, all the macronutrients, all the micronutrients. And it quickly became an obsession for me. And I remember thinking at one point that semester, I feel like I know too much. And that won't be true for everyone. Someone else could go study nutrition and not develop an obsession with it. But because of the state I was in and because I was already... Gradually losing weight, which means I was not taking in enough energy on a daily basis. I was purposefully restricting my intake. Um, that becomes an obsession. So there's actually a really interesting study that was done. I always get the time frame wrong. I want to say it was sometime in the 50s. Um, it's called the Starvation Study, just sort of in passing, that's kind of what people call it. That's not the title of the study. But if you look up the starvation study, you will find it. Um, And it was looking at this preoccupation that develops this preoccupation with food that develops in response to restriction. I mean, I looked at food websites, I looked at cookbooks all the time, I was studying nutrition for my degree, like it was nonstop. And it would only be until like it was years into my career before I recognized that that is what we now refer to as orthorexia, which is an unhealthy fixation with healthy food and healthism, or an obsession with being healthy. Um, and the irony of orthorexia is that often it leads people into a pretty unhealthy state. So that's how I got into nutrition, um, but I I struggled with that most of college, um, I did kind of start to reverse the trajectory. So I, I lost weight most of my freshman year, and then gradually gained weight, um, getting back up to a healthy weight in my early 20s. But it took a long time, because I didn't know what was going on. And everything I was studying seemed to validate and justify my behaviors, mm-hmm. which was really problematic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it took a while for me to recognize that.
0: You know, it's, um if we go back again to when this all started. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New Mexico. Oh wow. Okay. And you <laughs> you have made your way to the East Coast by now in life?
1: Yeah, I went to school in Pennsylvania. So, that it was is. a big big transition.
0: Yeah, totally. So, why were you already dieting in high school and how early does this diet culture begin for girls these days? Well, we've seen so I work
1: more in the eating disorder space now. And I mean, I've heard some clients say as early as five, they remember going on their first diet. Um, I, my lane nine project co founder, which we might talk about in a little bit, but my co founder, Alexis is a school teacher, she works in kindergarten, she hears her students talking about diets. Um, So it starts really, really early.
0: And And why does it start with the mom?
1: I don't know. I mean, I couldn't pinpoint exactly because I don't want to make assumptions. But I think it's just kind of our culture at large. I think it is like we said earlier, you know, this culture around diets disproportionately affects women and is disproportionately targeted at women. Um, So I think that's part of it. There has been a little bit of research in the eating disorder space showing that some people are genetically more likely to have an eating disorder. So you could have a group of friends who all go on the same diet together and maybe out of the four or five of them, only one will end up with a clinical eating disorder um, kind of triggered by those behaviors. So I will say that I had pretty low self-esteem in high school. I mean, I played sports, I was on the soccer team. So luckily for me, I wasn't on a sport that emphasized appearance very much. You know, it wasn't track and field or cross country where you're kind of assuming that if I'm leaner, I'm faster. I didn't have that thought at all. Um, If anything, in soccer, you need to be like a little stocky so you can hold your own out there, or I thought that. Um, so I, I think it was just kind of a low self-esteem. I made one or two changes to the way I was eating and noticed that it made a difference. So then I just kept making more changes. I think part of the problem with both dieting, but then especially a diet that transcends into an eating disorder, is that you're never satisfied. There's never one mm-hmm. weight that actually feels good or one diet that feels good if you try one and you feel like you saw some results you want more you want more you want more so so uh, when
0: when did you you said by the time you were in your 20s it was sort of still weight focused but when did you finally become healthy with how you looked at food and I don't know your philosophy on eating when did that become actually healthy Uh, It was a
1: very gradual process. So I definitely started working on it as soon as I became a dietitian. And I started to recognize um, there's a saying that I've heard at least among dietitians and therapists, and this probably extends to other professions, but you can only take someone as far as you've gone yourself. So... I was pretty fed up with what I was experiencing and didn't want to be in the thick of that anymore. I mean, an eating disorder really takes over your life. It's a constant monologue of thoughts and feelings and behaviors. And so I I recognized at least towards the end of my education that I was kind of ready to be done with it. Not that you can just flip that switch, but you know, that motivation to change was kind of growing. So I just worked on little things for me that were helpful. So Um, Running actually was a huge part of my recovery because I felt like as soon as I started running longer distances, I trained for my first half marathon as a senior in college. And for me, running was something that helped me see food and my body differently. So I was able to kind of employ my education and say, okay, if I want to go for a really long run, I need energy to do that. And I need to give my body energy in order to have energy. So that was a really helpful switch for me. Um, that said, a lot of the clients I work with who are under fueling or restricting and have struggled with uh, low energy intake for a long time, part of their healing process is probably to stop running because their body mm-hmm. is so under fueled that all of that energy is going into exercise and we want to conserve it for the body. Um So I always say, you know, running was a huge part of my recovery and taught me a lot about my body and taught me to respect my body um, and what it could do given the right resources. But that's the opposite of what I see more often. Um, And then later in my career, um, I was kind of experiencing cognitive dissonance. Like I recognized that a lot of the messages I was supposed to be giving people based on traditional dietetics felt really harmful to me. Like, I can't tell people to cut calories or, you know, reduce this or reduce that and then reduce this other thing when that's what led me into a really dark place. So for me, it felt like, why would I say that to someone else if I don't believe that that's really healthy for us? Um, So I kind of stepped back and took a little break from practicing nutrition in that way and worked in a startup for a couple of years. And honestly, that's when I discovered this kind of foundation of intuitive eating and the, the paradigm of health at every size. Um, and dietitians who practice that and that was kind of the tail end of my recovery. Like I had been working on these things for myself for a long time. But that's when I really was like, Oh, there's a name for this, this, this feeling of being able to eat, any food and not having morality attached to it and this finding joyful movement and exercise that makes me feel good, not exercise that burns calories and all of those things. So once I found that, I was like, oh, okay, I can do this. I could stick around and um, weave this into my practice and then feel really good about what I'm doing. Wow.
0: Did you work with any therapists?
1: I wish I had I did. I did see a therapist for a little while in my mid 20s. But that was related to some other life transitions and not actually related to food. (laughs) Um, But that is often part of the process. And I just wish that I had known that earlier. And I, I would have used that tool because I think it's very helpful. Most of the people that I work with, one of the first questions I ask is, are you working with a therapist? And if not, how soon can we find you one? Because it's just part of the process.
0: Can and I love that mentality. Um, and I think I'd love to actually ask you what those transitions you went through were, because what you often find is that people may fall back into old or habits that didn't make them happy when mm-hmm. they're going through transitions.
1: No, that's so true. And I, I mentioned that I went to Penn State and that that was a big transition for me because I now recognize the more that I know about disordered eating and and our health, the more I recognize that huge life transitions are big triggers. And we just sometimes don't see that at the time. So I mean, moving across the country, being away from my family for the first time, going to college, like, being in what felt like me to a foreign land. (laughs) like I'm from Northwest New Mexico, central Pennsylvania looks very different. Um, So just like kind of a culture shock, to be honest, like I same country, but felt like worlds apart to me. Um, And then transitioning out of college, I think was actually very helpful for me. I went into my dietetic internship right away, but I stayed on the East coast and I had friends in the area. So that was, that felt supportive. In my mid-20s, I transitioned out of a long-term relationship, and I definitely felt some of those triggers coming on, um, that tendency. I mean, a lot of it is I feel like my life is running me instead of me running my life, and I want to take back some of that control. And instead of acknowledging feelings of anxiety or maybe depression or um Just kind of in a discomfort with where we are personally, instead of acknowledging those things, we grasp for control somewhere else. And we feel like food or exercise or both are things that we can control, but it's a false sense of security.
0: That's really well said. Um, Okay, well, that actually (laughs) makes me feel like how much pressure do you have now to live up to (laughs) your own philosophies that you you know, help other people grapple with.
1: Yeah. And I think that's something I struggled with a little bit initially. So I didn't talk about these things as much. I think, again, when when someone is as open as I am about my story, because I think that's really powerful. And I think one of the best things we can do for each other as humans um, is to share these stories and share what we're going through. But at the same time, it has to be something that you feel Healed from, or you feel strong enough to discuss, right? Like if you're going to get feedback about this, or someone's going to ask questions, you need to know that you're strong enough to to provide those answers and maybe provide support for someone else. Um, so it wasn't something that I talked about for a really long time. And when I did start talking about it, I started blogging about orthorexia and my experience with it. I started blogging about being a dietitian who had an eating disorder in college and The main thing that I noticed was everyone else saying, I went through that too. So it became a little bit easier to start kind of sharing what I had gone through because I knew for sure I wasn't the only one. And then I thought if I can help someone else feel that way, then it's all worth it. Um, At this point, I do share food photos and food stories and stuff on my Instagram for my podcast because that's kind of where I know my... I don't share it as much on my personal account, so I share it there, um, and I kind of will share little snippets of like intuitive eating stories or memories from college and stuff like that associated with those food photos, and I feel no pressure at all to live up to an ideal because I think that's – I'm not living up to an ideal. I'm not trying to create an ideal eating situation or an ideal eating pattern. I'm just – eating how I want to. <laughs> so to me, there's nothing to live up to, you know, and then if it was something I was still struggling with, I think I would be open about that in a way that felt okay to me. Um, but when I was when I did kind of notice some of those triggers, like going through those life transitions, going through relationships ending or new relationships starting or a move or something like that, I'm strong enough where I am now that I see those triggers. And I might hear that voice in the back of my head, but I'm like, mm. Nope, you don't get to win. You're not part of the story. Um, But that's a lot of the work that I do with clients is starting to recognize the difference between that voice and your own healthy voice and kind of learning to recognize what's good for you.
0: You know, it reminds me of, you know, what you learn as an athlete and this phrase of listening to your body. Mm -hmm. And the mind body connection is so strong. And seeing the signs before they blow up into something huge and before you get injured, you know, or before you get overtrained. Right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Which is why I love working with fellow runners. Cause I'm like, if I can't reach you on a food level yet, I can reach you on a body level. I can talk to you about running and how you know your body and you connect to your body and you're willing to rest when you're injured. But being malnourished is an injury. It's a form of injury to the body. And Mm -hmm. so I just have to like shift someone's perspective to understand that.
0: Yep. Let's talk about the different, maybe kinds of eating disordered eating that's out there. Mm -hmm. So people can understand a little better. I I think most people have heard of anorexia and bulimia. But Mm -hmm. those can't be the only two disorders. And if they haven't heard, maybe you can educate a little bit.
1: Yeah, so those are the two that people seem to be most familiar with. So anorexia um, is a restrictive eating disorder in which people typically eat a very low amount on a day-to-day basis. Um, And the kind of the prominent feature is a really intense fear of weight gain and body dysmorphia. So, um, I think it's really important to note that you don't have to be underweight in order to be diagnosed with anorexia. Um, there are a lot of other diagnostic criteria, so we see it across the weight spectrum, but it's, um, an intense fear of weight gain, body dysmorphia, or not seeing your body as, a, as it actually presents. So they kind of have a, um, distorted view of their own body and then, um, restrictive behaviors. And then bulimia is. Uh, purging disorders. So that may be purging with laxatives, exercise, or vomiting. Um, There are kind of different types of bulimia as well, but we don't have to get into the nuances of that. And then there's binge eating disorder, which is a relatively new disorder in the diagnostic criteria. Um, And that is, binge eating is defined as something where you eat more in one sitting than you maybe normally would, or is kind of like a normal amount for someone. And I struggle a lot with that word normal, but it seems to be how people understand the definition of it. Um, and there's often a cognitive, uh, disconnection. So some people might say, I don't even remember what I ate in a binge episode, or I don't remember eating much, but then I see all these wrappers or, you know, food containers or whatever. So, um, Eating disorder again is relatively new in terms of something that is in the diagnostic criteria. Um, You have eating disorder on Otherwise unspecified, which is kind of an umbrella term for other disordered eating patterns. And then you have um, ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive uh, food intake disorder. And then we also have orthorexia, which we've talked about here. And that is not yet something that can be diagnosed, but there are people working on that. So we have our fingers crossed because it would really help uh, treatment teams better understand the disorder. And there is a lot of research being done around orthorexia, which is the best we can ask for right now so that we can better understand kind of the, the symptoms and how to help someone recover from it.
0: So if you, okay, this, I mean, basically the point is there's a big spectrum Mm -hmm. and it all revolves around thinking way too much about food and having it sort of take over your life.
1: Yeah, it typically is. I would say a food preoccupation tends to be a common thread between the disorders, um, but they are diagnosed as mental health disorders. So I think that's also important for people to understand. This is typically something that's diagnosed by a physician or a psychiatrist. um, And it is kind of a mental pattern of behaviors that manifests in food intake or um, body behaviors that maybe are used to manipulate the body or uh, manipulate food intake.
0: Yep, okay. So as you're going through your own personal path, did you have like a a rock bottom or a friend or somebody who helped sort of open your eyes to the fact that what you were doing wasn't healthy? You kind of mentioned like, it's just been a slow process of getting to a good point. And I guess I ask because, you know, a lot of people are probably listening and thinking I could definitely be making some changes. I'm thinking about food too much. It's running my life. I'm not, I love that quote of yours. I feel like my life is running me instead of me Mm -hmm. running my life. But did something happen to help pull you out, pull your head out of your ass (laughs) (laughs) and like make that change? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, You know, an eating disorder
1: is not a choice. It's not something that someone wants to have or chooses to have. It does seem to develop in a way that we're kind of unaware of. And then once it is diagnosed, it's sort of like, oh, okay, well, maybe I need help. Um, But then there are the eating disorders like orthorexia where there isn't really a technical diagnosis. And so no one could have come to me and said, I think you have. A problem <laughs> you know like I don't think anyone knew what to call it so there wasn't anyone really that said anything to me and again I think a huge part of the problem is that with orthorexia because dieting and healthy eating are so normalized and praised in our culture it doesn't seem like a problem right um my body weight probably was a red flag to a lot of people for a long time. But as I slowly gained weight, I think that was probably less of a concerning factor. Um, so while some people did sort of say some things here and there, it was never anything that seemed like some, like a problem that we could identify or name in some way. So then it becomes kind of nebulous and hard to address. Um, but the turning point for me was really that I, I stopped getting my period right before I went to college. So it just went away and I didn't know what that meant. And it seems like all of my healthcare practitioners at the time also didn't know what that meant. So I would go in for annual screenings or physicals or when I would have a sore throat or whatever, and you fill out the form and the form for women is always when was your last menstrual cycle? And I would say either, I don't know, or I would put like June of whatever, 2004 when I graduated high school. Um, and so the first question was always, are you pregnant? I'm like, nope, <laughs> pretty sure I'm not pregnant. Um, and then it was, okay, well, do you want to go on birth control pills? That will help you get a period, which is sort of true, but it's a fake period. Um, so after six years of that, of going on and off the pill, but really feeling like I at least could acknowledge at that time that it was a Band-Aid, it was not fixing anything, it wasn't helping anything heal... Um, I wondered about whether I'd be able to have kids or not. And there wasn't a lot of information about this at the time. So now we have a book by Dr. Nicola Rinaldi and we have Facebook groups and we have the nonprofit that we've created to try to help people become more educated on this. But at the, at the time I had no language for it. I had no vocabulary for it. So all I knew was I wasn't getting a period and that didn't seem very healthy. So I eventually asked one of my practitioners, I think it was a nurse practitioner, I said, am I infertile? And she said, well, taking birth control won't make you fertile, but I don't know if you're infertile. Like there's no way to know until you start trying to get pregnant, Um, which I was 22 or 23 at the time. So I was not interested in it quite yet, Um, but that scared me a lot. And I also knew from my education that if I wasn't in a healthy hormonal balance, I probably wasn't building bone mineral density because that's the age where we do that. And our hormones, our reproductive hormones like estrogen help with that. Um, So I got really scared that I wasn't going to have strong bones and that eventually I would not be able to run anymore. And it just kind of spiraled from there. So that was really my turning point. And again, I wish I had asked for help or thought that that was I wish I had realized that that would be necessary and that there were people that I could reach out to. Um, But because I didn't really have a name for it or a label for it or whatever, it just didn't occur to me to do that. Um, But it did occur to me to start eating more and start working on my own patterns and behaviors so that my body would be healthy again.
0: Yeah. No, this is good stuff. I mean, really great self-introspection because you could have gone the opposite way. Yeah. So it, yeah, it could have been like, okay, well, I accept this as my truth. So yeah, exactly. here we are. <laughs> exactly. Um, and look, at you've got a great little baby now. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so guess <I> do. what? <laughs> you can turn it all around from what your perceptions are. So mm-hmm. if we switch over to this concept of the female athlete triad, you mentioned yeah. this on your website and your materials in your podcast, um, I think losing your period is part of the equation. Maybe, am I right?
1: You are correct. Yes. Maybe you
0: can educate us on what this term means and why women go through this. The female athlete triad is,
1: has been redefined as REDS or relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, And that's to address that it affects both genders. So it does not just affect females. However, the female athlete triad specifically is three components, as you may have guessed. And it's low bone mineral density or loss of bone mineral density, um, low energy availability, and a loss of period or loss of menses. Um, For younger athletes, the loss of menses could be replaced by delayed menarche. So um, if they haven't started their period or haven't gone through puberty by age 16, that's primary amenorrhea. Um, And then if they have started their period, but they've lost it, so it's just doesn't show up every month anymore, Um, that's secondary amenorrhea. And there are a lot of different causes of secondary amenorrhea, pregnancy being one of them, lactation being one of them, uh, PCOS. So there are medical things that we wanna rule out first, um, but if those aren't the cause, then we are kind of left with um, or there are also, I should say, tumors um, that can cause hormonal imbalances. Um, But say that all of those things have been ruled out, then we're kind of left with what's called hypothalamic amenorrhea. And it's, again, low energy availability. Um, So our hypothalamus is not producing the hormones that we need in order to have a regular menstrual cycle. Um, And so the female athlete triad often presents or is kind of easily identified by that lack of menses. And then that means you have the other two components. You have low bone mineral density or you're losing, you are probably losing bone mineral density um, and you have low energy availability or you're not taking in enough energy to account for your activity level. Um, So while we see this with athletes, um, people who identify as athletes who are in a competitive sport or competing at a collegiate or pro level, uh, we also see it with recreational athletes, people who are exercising by hobby or just for fun. Um, So it definitely affects all ends of the spectrum for people who are active.
0: You know, it's funny as you were describing that you hit on women who identify themselves as athletes. And I bet you many of the women listening today are athletes. You're out there Mm -hmm. probably on a run listening, but you would not call yourself an athlete. So why do we do that to ourselves? Why do we downplay what we do and who we are?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I see that a lot, too, of like, well, you know, I heard of the female athlete triad, but I didn't think that that was a name for what I'm experiencing, because I'm not an athlete. Um, and like you said, if you're out there doing the thing, you are an athlete. Um, and it's even hard for me to really say that. I don't really call myself an athlete. But, um, you know, if you're training for something, if you're moving your body in a way that is involved in sport, you're an athlete. Doesn't require payment, doesn't <laughs> require a contract of any kind. Um, so I think once we can kind of shift that mindset and that identity, we can probably better address our needs. You know, if I think of myself as an athlete, I'm probably more likely to do recovery exercises like stretching and foam rolling and um, sleeping more and s- hydrating better and fueling and all of those things uh, versus someone who's like, oh, I just I just run for fun. I don't need any of those things,
0: <laughs> even though oh, I want to yeah. be able to continue running, right? I absolutely agree. This might be actually a good time to talk a little bit more about Lane 9, which is your nonprofit, because maybe we can start wrapping it up with things that people can do to retrain their brains. How do you move from unhealthy thinking habits to healthy thinking habits as they apply to food? Well, first and foremost,
1: if you have access to it, please... Enlist a care team. And by that I mean a physician, a therapist, and a dietitian. Um, Because it takes a team to help you recover from this. And it's totally okay to need all of those resources. That is part of the process. Um, If that's not accessible to you, at the very least, try reaching out to at least one of those people, um, preferably the therapist or the dietitian. A physician um, typically is a little less knowledgeable on eating disorders unless it's an eating disorder specialist. Um, so that would be the first step if it's possible. Um, if if not, but also if you've enlisted your care team, I think also kind of reading what you can from helpful resources. So finding um, blogs by dietitians or podcasts by dietitians that talk about a more flexible relationship with food or a more flexible um approach to eating instead of kind of consuming information related to diets because that kind of just reinforces those behaviors. Um, But also just kind of taking a step back and acknowledging what you need. So when you think about health, how do you define that Um, and once we kind of have that bigger picture in mind, how can we take smaller steps to work towards it? So for me, I knew that being healthy meant having a healthy cycle and being able to run as long as I could run as long as my joints would put up with it. Um, And so that meant, okay, clearly my body is not getting what it needs. So I need to up the energy intake. And what we see pretty often is that When people do that and they start to eat a little bit more and they start to acknowledge their hunger levels and they start to address really how much they do need in order to be healthy, we start producing more rational thoughts. So an an undernourished brain or a, a brain in starvation mode doesn't often produce very logical thoughts because we are preoccupied with food. So we don't have a lot of mental space for everything else. Um, so again, just kind of taking that step back, seeing how you define healthy and how does that stack up with where you are right now, and then identifying some of those small steps that you can take to get there. And that's enlisting a team, asking for help eating more or maybe eating more variety and letting go of some of the rigid food rules and restrictive um, food habits. And then also just finding a way that you can keep doing what you love. So I'm guessing a lot of people listening love to run just as much as I do and as much as you do. Um, So if that's important to you, what's it gonna take for your body to be able to do that in a healthy way and think about kind of how you can work yourself up to that.
0: Well, and in regarding Lane 9, what's the meaning behind the name of your nonprofit?
1: Yeah, so the Lane 9 project is um, we work to increase awareness and advocate for eating disorders in all levels of sport. So we focus a lot on running because the three of us who started it identify as runners, um, but we have a lot of different sports in the mix. And we're specifically uh, a community for women who are struggling with disordered eating or maybe have Been in that struggle and identify with it. And so it's just a community of support. Uh, We share stories online. So on our website, we share um, personal stories and essays, and we have writing prompts every month that people will submit. Uh, So that's lean9project.org. And then we have a Facebook community where we provide support and um, just help people kind of communicate with others who know what they're going through, um, but also just providing resources and kind of letting people have a safe space for having conversations about this stuff because sometimes like the words amenorrhea and orthorexia or even eating disorder feel kind of scary to say in our personal circles, but this is a circle of women who know what you're talking about and are happy to have those conversations.
0: Absolutely, I love it. So we'll definitely be checking that out, but I also like this idea of what does health mean to you? You know, Mm -hmm. how often do you step back and really put that down on paper? I encourage everybody listening to do that. What does health mean to you? What the health?
1: (laughs) And I think it's important to acknowledge that it's okay to think of health subjectively. You know, we don't have one definition that applies to everybody. So you get to decide what's healthy for you and you are the only one who knows your body best, knows your health history best, knows what's most important to you. And I think as long as we can think in health think about health in terms of our emotional, physical and mental health and then incorporate aspects of social health and family health and all of those things, it starts to look a little bit differently than just eat healthy, move more and go to the doctor once a year. You right. know, that's just one aspect of it.
0: That's a great point. Well, another place I think uh, you mentioned reading books, taking in information, you have an awesome podcast. I love it. It's called RD Real Talk. So RD, (laughs) registered dietitian, right? However, you don't have to be an RD to love your podcast. It's really for everyone.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, um, we're there trying to share information about kind of these lesser known paradigms, intuitive eating and health at every size and kind of helping people have a vocabulary for this
0: stuff. Awesome. Um, well, we will definitely have links for people to connect to all the cool things you're doing. And uh, on that note, I think it is time for us to wrap this awesome episode. It's so educational and inspirational and I think gives people good tools you know, to move their lives forward in a positive way. Um, But before we go, I ask every guest who comes on one final question. So that is that if you could give our listeners one final nugget, one little piece of advice to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be?
1: Oh, like plain and simple, you do you. So focus on yourself, don't think that's selfish. Know what's best for you. Do the things that feel good to you. Run in a way that makes you happy. Um, or don't run if that's what's making you happier today. Um, but yeah, don't don't be afraid to, to do what's best for yourself.
0: Perfectly said. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, Nicole. All right, you guys, I'm back. What'd you think? I personally love her final nugget. Heard it before and I still love it. You do you. And she backs it up with, don't be afraid to do what's best for yourself. If you go all the way back and listen to my introduction again, that's what we're talking about. Don't be afraid to make the decision that's best for you, because in the end, it's often fear that holds us back from many incredible experiences we can have in this one beautiful life. When you let go of that fear and you sink into who you are, accept and embrace yourself, you will definitely find the gold and the magic and all the sparkly fairy dust. <laughs> all right, for more on Heather Kaplan, check out her website, heatherkaplan.com. Follow her on social media. Definitely check out her podcast, RD Real Talk, um, and just hook up with that woman. Learn more. She's, she's just a wealth of information. All right, folks, that's it for today. I think you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.